This episode contains graphic content that may be alarming to some. Listener discretion is advised. It said something like, Kelly Rowland is no longer a viable artist. I saw it on the internet. It, like, it spread like wildfire. That really did a number on me. I was really f***ing pissed. Come on, man, let's go. Let's get done one more time. This is a show inspired by one of my kids who, for them, making mistakes and facing failure when things aren't predictable can be really tough. But life isn't predictable. If you want to be successful at anything, mistakes and failure, they're just required. You've got to fall down if you want to move ahead. And in today's social media world, we're so good at posting our best angles with the best filters. We're not posting the mistakes we make. We're posting our victories. But that's not real life. Being a Grammy-nominated songwriter, producer, and entrepreneur, I get to hang with some of the most influential, bigger-than-life human beings on the planet. And even when making the biggest hit records, few nail it on the first take. I'm going to try and challenge the stigma of fucking up and explore how even the most successful people face personal and professional moments of doubt and hopefully show all of us that our failures are more fragile moments are where greatness is born. I'm your host, Billy Mann, and this is Yeah, I Fucked That Up. Today's episode is about bumpy transitions from becoming a global sensation as part of Destiny's Child to a massive solo career to the lengths a parent will go to be there for their family. We're talking to one of my dearest friends in my life, not just in my career, Kelly Rowland. It's difficult to introduce someone who doesn't need much of an introduction because as part of Destiny's Child and as a solo artist, Kelly has collectively sold well over 100 million records. That's a big number. But beyond that, today we're going to dig into the lessons she's learned the hard way, being a wife and a mother and an adult in a business where she started out not being the decision maker and needing to grow into a decision making role. She's been working in the entertainment business for over 25 years. She was only a young teenager when Destiny's Child was first formed. I remember I was at Henson Studios and I met Kelly on her first solo record. And I met her and she was electric. And that's what stands out to me about her career. But what stands out to her from that time is going to be a different story. So I'm excited to share with you the one and only Kelly Rowland. Delighted to be here. This is about making mistakes. It's about fucking up. I think given all of the success that you have had and continue to have, it's not a likely topic that you're going to be asked about. At all. As a matter of fact, no one asks you about that. When I think about it, even as you're just bringing it up, I'm like, oh my God, I just, I think I kind of fuck up every day <laughs> in some way or another. You know what I mean? But it's, it's so crazy. No one has ever asked that. The question is, are those the things that make us better? And if they are, by the way, why don't we talk about it? In our generation, I think that it's the whole idea of this being so perfect. When I was coming up with Destiny's Child, it was people look up to you. You want to make the right decision. So that has stuck with me. Mm. And so no matter what it was, it was really important for me to be on. 
How old were you then? Ooh, 15. What was that talk? It was the first time me and the girls had played somewhere and people were like following us and asking us for autographs. Mm. And it was like, well, you guys are idols now. You want to take that very seriously. And we were like, okay, it's like, so you guys have to make the right decisions and you guys have to make sure that you, you know, are responsible for yourself at all times. And it was like, oh my gosh. In my head, I was like, well, I can't stay out late because then someone will think that I'm irresponsible. And you know what I mean? Like, so it was all these things in my head that I couldn't do. And I wanted to make sure that I was doing the right thing so that I was like, you know, perfect Patty. And you were at the time living really part of the Knowles family. Mm -hmm. So the conversation wasn't one that you could, oh, I'm going to go home and I'll work it out at home. It was like, it was home. It it was home. And I think that it was also a really good thing because if I wanted to talk about it, I had B to talk to about it with. And my friends wouldn't understand. You know what I mean? It was literally like we were in it together. So it was perfect to be able to talk to her about it. And whenever we came across other artists, like maybe talk to them about it. But it was more so I trusted her with it. You know what I mean? Well, it's hard in general to find people that you can trust with most things. Facts. But when you're a teenage girl under the lens yes. of celebrity and yeah. attention, it's pretty limited, right? It is. And at the same time, there were four of you. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like when you look at that experience, when Destiny's Child went through that transformation, mm-hmm. personnel shifts and everything, yeah. was that the first look at potential failure? Oh, absolutely. What was that like? It was heartbreaking because you got to remember with Latoya and Latavia, we were friends. Like I met Latavia at elementary school. She came over to my house and she heard me singing with Barbies in my closet. And she's like, oh, my God, you have to try out for the group. So here's a friendship that came together organically being shown to the rest of the world. And then that being tarnished with however everything happened and us showing the world, here we are, we're doing this right and we got this right. Oh shit, we're losing members. <laughs> the, the ship is sinking. What is going on? And that was hard because people also saw it. You know what I mean? It, it was public. It was public and we just wanted to to fix it. And it was humiliating and it did feel like Everyone was watching the ship go down. Like it was nothing Mm. we could do in that moment. And that was hard. And we were so young. You know what I mean? We were 18, 17, somewhere around there. I don't remember the exact age for certain because it was that tough of a time. I think that in failure, sometimes you also have to realize like some, sometimes it just happens for a reason is to get you to the other side. And the part in the middle just sucks right. <laughs> because you're kind of you either decide to wade in the failure or you decide to try again and fix it. Mm. And for us in that time, we were like, well, shit, we got a number one record. We got to fix this quick. <laughs> and that's what happened. So. Looking back now, how you view Destiny's Child, what do you think was your biggest fail in that experience? I think I could have known exactly what I brought to the table. That's where I failed myself to me. 
I think that when you don't quite know your value, it sometimes shows. I didn't say enough for myself. You know what I mean? I, I think that with some things you have to let people know, no, this is my greatness and you either take it or leave it. That, that was really it for me. Like, I just wish I understood my value more. Do you think that Beyonce and Michelle would agree with that? Yes, they would. They would most certainly agree with that as we just had this conversation. <laughs> I do want to touch briefly on how you and I met, Mm -hmm. which was, and I remember that Teresa LaBarbera, who's one of the most unsung heroes in the history of the music industry, like greatest A&R executive that I can think of in pop music. For anybody that's listening to this and doesn't know what A&R means, A&R is artist and repertoire. And from the beginning of the modern music business, A&R people were the people that could hear something before it was fully formed and would match the artists with the repertoire. So sometimes that was working with songwriters, sometimes working with producers, doing that groundwork, that creative work to help their careers blossom into what would ultimately become a final single or an album. Teresa is one of those A&R greats that so many massive careers wouldn't have happened the way they did without her waving her wand. She signed Destiny's Child all of Beyonce's records, Kelly's solo records, found Jessica Simpson, did all the Jessica records. She's worked with Britney Spears and Pink. And because she is one of the few women A&R executives, particularly during the time when she started, even until now, I think she doesn't get the credit that she deserves. So that's why, Kelly, you and I feel so strongly about sharing how wonderful she is. I just want to shout out to Teresa. Absolutely. We Um, love you, Teresa. So Teresa connected us and we met and I had written a song with you called Love Love Lives Lives in Strange Strange Places. Places. That was your first solo record. Yes. Stole, right? Yes. And what was that like? That experience being a solo artist. Petrifying. You know this. No, but I mean, (laughs) no, but, but how did you manage that? You're a part of this massive, the biggest girl group in the history of music. Yeah. And then you put out a solo record. How did that manifest for you? I mean, at the time, it was like I I had to get it done. You know what I mean? Because everything was moving, you know, from Dilemma. Mm Because Dilemma was like the moving train that wouldn't stop moving. So it was like, all right, time for you to start and finish your solo project. (laughs) Dilemma came out, and this is your first solo moment. Yes. And it was number one everywhere. It was like number one on Jupiter. It was number one (laughs) in every country. But was it like, okay, my first time out the gate is the biggest number one. I didn't think about it like that. If anything, to be honest, it scared me. You know what I mean? Because I was like doing it without Michelle and B next to me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to fall on my face. And I was just like, well, what do I need to do? What does it need to sound like? What do I need to look like? It was mm. so many questions that I asked myself. I kept thinking of how do I actually make this be great and successful? Mm. What's the hardest no you've ever received? I mean, it wasn't a no, but it was the way Sony let me go. That really did a number on me. I was really 
fucking pissed. So mad that I curse. What led up to it? You were working on a project like I wasn't working on a project. So you're notified. No, no. I saw it on the Internet. It like it spread like wildfire. What did it say? It said, oh, shit. It was something like Kelly Rowland is no longer a viable artist or something like that. And I was like, what the f- does that mean? Because you had been an artist with Sony for how long? The beginning of my career. Right. 15, 16 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And did anybody from the company call you and say, this is horrible? Or I don't remember anyone from the company calling me to say that. Not one person. But I could be wrong. Because, like I said, that time is so fuzzy for me and very much so a trauma space that I still need to do some tapping on. And then do you feel like everybody sort of runs away from the explosion? Yeah, I thought that people wouldn't want to work with me. I thought the industry didn't want to have anything to do with me. And that wasn't the case at all. But it was them. Like, we'd worked together for so long. So it was just like, dang, why would y'all... Oh, we in things like that. So did you feel like who's going to sign me? Yeah, I definitely felt like I didn't have any value. What about the no from them hurt the most? It was public. You tried to humiliate me and you tried to devalue me. And that did not stick very well. It was probably one of the most hurtful moments of my life. For sure. And why I let it mean so much to me, it was all I'd known. They were all I'd known. And shit, I was still signing them as Destiny's Child. You want me to be nice to you? You know what I mean? It was like really, really wrong. Yeah. So I was disappointed in how that all went down. But you got right back up Mm -hmm. and put your elbows up and said, get out of my fucking way. Yeah. Then you have When Love Takes Over with David Guetta, because I heard that song in a taxi in Paris. David played it for me. He was like, Billy, I have this song. And he didn't know that you and I were like really close. And I heard the song. At the time, I was really down myself. And I remember I heard this song and I was like, I'm going to put everything on this. (laughs) like, Because I love David. I loved the song. And it was you. And I knew you had just come out of the Sony situation. And I was grappling with my own imposter syndrome. It's like, I'm all of a sudden, I'm the president of a huge company. And I remember just wanting to find something that I was willing to risk my life on. Yeah. And it was your record with David, which was massive. It is one of the biggest hits of your career now. And David's. You then went on and you signed a new deal with Motown. Yeah. And then after Motown and a series of records and features and movies and TV shows and getting married to Tim and motherhood, do you look back at that period and think this was exactly the way it was supposed to be? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm more grateful. I definitely say I'm I'm, I'm definitely more grateful for all of that that happened because I think that it shaped me into the woman, into the performer, into the wife, into the artist that I needed to be for now, for sure. But if you look back and you thought, 
of your biggest fall on your face face plant moment? It wasn't that. What was it? I think that it's every day and learning how to be a wife, figuring out how to be a mother because nobody gets a freaking rule book for this. And I might say the wrong thing and then I come back and I apologize, whether it's to my husband or to like my oldest. I don't get that right every time. Mm. If I get so upset that I raise my voice and I see what it does to him and I'm like, oh shit, I just failed motherhood. And then for me, in that particular case, I was like, why did I just do that? Because I want to be the best mother for Titan. I want to be the best mother for Noah. I want to be the best wife for Tim. But I know I'm going to mess up some sort of way, whether I like it or not. And I think that it's so much emphasis when you look at social media. Oh, well, there's this new way of parenting. And, Mm. you know, it's all of that great. You know what I mean? Too much of one thing and too much of another thing is just too much of whatever it is. So you just learning. And if you F up on the way, you just got to learn how to like do a grace and make it up. What was the first time you really fucked it up with the kids? I think it was my time away and Titan really wanted me to come home. And I had two more weeks and he was like, why can't you just get back here? And I was like, cause I'm at work. And he didn't understand like, how come I couldn't just drop what I was doing and just come home. And he is my first priority. But the moment that I could get home, which was that very (laughs) following weekend, Mm -hmm. and it was for a couple of hours. It was for a couple of hours and I came home. I was just focused on him, had the best time with him. And I told him, I was like, I'm only home till 8 p.m. tonight. And then I'm back on a plane and I go back to work. Are you okay? Yes, I'm okay, mommy. But so that's from Australia. Yes. And it was only for a couple of hours. That's like two days of flying (laughs) for four hours. It is, but it was worth it because when I walked through the door, He was happy. He felt seen because it was a time where I was so busy. He didn't feel seen by me. I was gone for two and a half, almost three weeks. It's a long time for him and he's itty bitty. So, yeah. Your mom worked raising other people's kids. Yes. What was that like? I don't think that I've actually processed that. Because I was there with her, I didn't feel like I was like missing anything. You know what I mean? Like she was a live-in nanny. I was living with her. It seems sometimes like she was nicer to other people's kids than she was to me. But I think that it was also her job. Well, I'm saying it also because I can't get out of my head Mm -hmm. the direct connection of you prioritizing your kids Mm -hmm. to the extent that you literally would travel across the world for four hours with them, knowing that. It wasn't until recently that you had a relationship with your dad yeah, and that your mom's full-time job was caring for other people's children. And where did you fit into that? And I think it is part of what informs us. Yeah. Did you ever have a moment where you looked at these other kids and had felt something about them? No. As a matter of fact, their surrounding inspired my future surrounding. Because I didn't want the one-bedroom apartment that my mom and I were in. Their house inspired my house. I knew I wanted space. I knew I wanted more for myself. I smelled perfume at their house. So one of the first perfumes I bought myself was the perfume that my mom's boss had at the time. 
I knew I wanted a nice robe. Look, I have a nice robe on today. So it's certain things that inspired my future. And I just knew I wanted more for myself because my mom worked her butt off. But I just, I was like, I don't think I want to be a nanny. I don't think I want to be a housekeeper because my grandmother was a housekeeper and nanny too. And I just wanted something different for myself. Do you think that that's that cycle that you broke in it? I think that in my lifetime, I will continue to break it. I won't get it right every single time, but I will continue to break it for sure. Is there a moment that you can remember specifically where you didn't speak up for yourself or that you didn't, that you didn't summon that strength in particular? Yes. What was it? It was a conversation that I had with someone and I listened to them really be disrespectful to me, like more than once. And that was like the way I felt after that conversation was just yucky because I had a, an opportunity to say, fuck you, <laughs> you know what I mean? And walk away, but respectfully, fuck you and walk away. But I didn't. And I felt like I failed myself. And I think that's the worst part when you do it and you're failing in the moment and you can feel it. And, and afterwards you just feel like shit. Well, I think it's when a person bullies somebody. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like you were bullied. And if you're on the receiving end of being targeted, it's one thing if you read a critic says something that's hurtful. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think anybody's successful, including me, hasn't had those moments where you right. read someone and they say whatever they say. But when someone face-to-face says really aggressive things mm-hmm. that are hurtful, I think it's a bullying. But even when they say it nicely, because people do that too. And they could literally tell you to go freaking fly a kite in the sweetest tone. And it's still a shitty thing to say. So it, it doesn't matter. I think that bullying is in all forms. And we have to be able to hear it, point that shit out, and be able to stick up for ourselves and walk away and be okay with whatever happens on the other side. Why? Because the fear is truly of what's going to happen on the other side, whether you're in a relationship with someone, you're in a business relationship with someone, a loving relationship with someone, a friendship with someone, and you come to this part in the relationship and you have to say something. But in that moment, you're like, oh, crap, do I say anything? What are, is, is this relationship going to still be there if I say this? I think it's the fear of all of that. And you have to be willing to be okay with whatever is on the other side. You're one of the most successful singers in the world and you're a judge on The Voice. Mm -hmm. And yet we're having this conversation about Mm -hmm. those moments that required that voice and you struggling Mm -hmm. to summon it. How hard is it for you to say to somebody, no, that's not working out? It is so, with, it, with, I'm stuttering. With every fiber of my being, it is hard to say no. Because you watch how hard people work. You watch how much they love it. It's so strange because I feel like there has to be a reason why God 
allows me opportunities like this because I can often hear something in my heart and my head speaking. And I try to be very open and clear on that. And I'll speak from that. And I, I'll watch body language. I'll watch how they respond to things. And I'll know how I'm supposed to respond to them back. Because sometimes people are not emotionally ready for a no. You have to realize how you have to land the no, how you have to deliver their no. But in our business. It's cold. <laughs> right? It's like. It's, it's cold. It's really nice of you, but you know that it's, it's super cold. Yes, it's super cold. It really depends on the person. This is like really great. But it depends on the person because sometimes it is a cold no. If, if it's a no, like I can say a no if there needs to be a no. But sometimes there's a specific spirit that you meet that can't take that no. Hmm. So. I want to just just to sort of wrap up for me is when you think about Titan and Noah in the future, Mm -hmm. they listen to this and you need to tell them something about failure or for you, I think, rejection. How do you change the narrative for them about not valuing yourself? Mm -hmm. How do you tell them, and this is for yourself too, Mm -hmm. that you wake up and that you are more powerful than you were the day before. How do you tell them how to value themselves better than you did? Mm. I mean, I tell them every day when we're in the mirror or we are reading a book together. To be honest, I think that all of that value is is really, when you're a kid, it's, it's kind of like your parents put that in you. You know, I I didn't have my dad there with me growing up, so I missed him. Now I hear him say all the time when he calls me, hey, baby, what's your pretty stuff? Hey, baby, what's your smart stuff? Hey, like, I hear that now, but I really needed to hear it when I was a kid. And you really need to hear all of that when you're a kid. I think that's a part of being a parent is putting the, that foundation in your children and letting them know you know, it's okay. Or when Noah fought, because Noah fell yesterday and we were like skipping down the street and we're playing and he fell. I kissed his boo-boo and we got right back up. Like all these like little things that I try to teach my boys every single day. And I tell Titan, I said, um, I always tell him, I said, I want you to be the best version of yourself. You don't have to try to be anyone else. But I'd hope that if they were to hear this and I'm not on this earth, they know how hard I'm pouring into them. I'd do anything for them because those things that I felt like fell short for me as a, as a kid wanting to hear that from a parent. I pray that I pour all of that into them. I think sometimes it's too much to where Titan kind of feels like, you know, he's like invincible <laughs> and he can't get in trouble, which is, you know, why he is the way he is. And he asks so many questions and I give him an opportunity to communicate or explain himself. But I pray that they know they are the most incredible version of me. Mm-hmm. It's literally the the space that I put them in. I work hard and Anything I do is for my kids. It's for my family. I hope they know that they have pillars of strength behind them, like ready to help them through it. And a community that 
will love on them and support them and give them all of the pearls and tools that they need for this life. They know how great they are. So when you roll back, we really spoke a lot about you not valuing yourself enough. How do you feel now when you're faced with challenges where you, in the past, you haven't valued yourself enough? Do you feel like you're making progress for yourself? Absolutely. In terms of failures, which are easier now, professional failures Mm -hmm. or parenting failures? Business. Business, for sure. Like, sometimes they kind of, like, cross paths in my my world. Mm. Titan sees me at work, too. And he'll see me with all these different challenges or I'm learning a script or a new song or whatever. Like he's looking at that and he'll ask me, mommy, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. He's like, you just, you just, I don't know, something feels off, but he can feel Titan's an energy guy. So he can always feel when I'm stressed about something and then I have to explain it to him. And then he says, well, you'll figure it out. You'll you'll figure it out, mommy. You always do. Interesting, that confidence that he has in you. I know. Which is a message that you didn't hear, that now you hear from your son. Yeah. Yeah. I want to think about the listener who's a Kelly Rowland fan, or or not a Kelly Rowland fan. Maybe it's just a person that's listening to this random podcast. Hi, person listening to this random podcast. If you had to give them a step-by-step instruction booklet on how to value yourself, what would you tell them? Be patient with yourself. Give yourself some grace and write it all down in a journal. Find your mistakes, or if you might know them already, write them down and think about if it had happened to a friend, how would, what would you tell that friend? How would you tell the friend to recover? What would you tell them? And that friend is actually you. Right. Because we usually give the most amazing advice to friends. I'd want that person, whoever this person is, to find one incredible thing about yourself and celebrate that until you find the next one. And when you find the next one, celebrate those other five more because hopefully you'll be it from one to five. You want to grow in that way. But I tell them to leave with grace towards self. And also, I have grown to know, and I'm so grateful I have this lesson, how you allow people to treat you is really on you. And we can change it, and it won't change overnight, but the truth is, is that when you set boundaries, they're not for just you. They're really for other people. It's literally the best thing that I've ever been told, like, what did my therapist say? She's like, oh, yeah, no, no, that's not for you. It's actually for them. Right. And I was like, oh. She's like, yeah, but it's going to be great for you later on. She was like, and you'll see how they react because the people that get upset with your boundaries, back away from them motherfuckers now. Because right. <laughs> they actually were really benefiting off of you having none. I'm going to random things and then we're going to wrap up. Yeah. Worst review you ever read. Worst review I ever read. Oh, I was touring at my Simply Deep show. Was not a great show. It was a good show. It wasn't a great show. And that was definitely everywhere. That it but was. there wasn't like one review that was like, that you saw and you were like, <gasps> No. 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 
because I was like, yeah, it does need work. I was very honest to right, myself about right. it, for sure. Biggest mistake you ever made in an interview, other than obviously agreeing to do this podcast, but oh, the God. biggest mistake you ever made in an interview. Oh, my God. When I made a mistake and told the sex of beast baby, like when she was pregnant with Blue. That was the worst moment ever. <laughs> the worst moment ever. Wait. And it was like such a mistake because I was like, yeah, and she. And I was like, what are they talking about? I didn't say, oh, my God. And it was it was that because it was no one's business. Right. And wait, what happened? Did she? I mean, I mean, disappointed. <laughs> yes. I felt terrible because it's not my news. It's so it's painful, right? Yes. It was honestly oh. the worst. It wasn't. It wasn't my news to share, right. and I didn't mean mean it like like that. <laughs> the she just kind of slipped out. I was like, "Uh oh." Okay, last question. Yeah. The most incorrect gossip ever written about you. Oh, that I was a man. <laughs> <laughs> I've read that I was because I think it was an outfit that I wore or something like that. I, I mean, sometimes I guess I do come off a little androgyny, but I, I love androgyny all day. So that's me. Um, thank you for taking this journey with me. I think it was really good for me to read about your career separate from our friendship, mm -hmm. to think about these things separate. And I think that to handle a career at a public level for this long and do it the way you have is, is pretty awesome. Thank you, Billy. I'm so grateful I got to talk to Kelly and share who she is off the court with people. When I asked Kelly about her biggest face plant, she said it was learning how to be a wife and figuring out how to be a mother. It wasn't like I got to learn these dance steps or I got to do something with my acting or it wasn't anything like that. It is the most private moment that represents the biggest challenge, which is just trying to figure out how to be a mom. So this struck me because I think we're always chasing after some kind of perfection as parents or as songwriters or as actors or partners or professionals. There's this whole focus on right and wrong, whether you are a celebrity or just somebody trying to make it through their workday. It's not about right and wrong. We're really just trying to be and do. We're just trying to be parents and do a good job with our families. I love that Kelly was open about how scary it is to just be a mom and a wife and to not want to fuck it up. I can't imagine what it's like to be someone who, when you go to the supermarket to just buy some milk, it's an event for other people. But I can say that when everybody goes home, when they're lying on their bed at night thinking about what did I do as a mom or a dad or a partner, it's an equal playing field because when the lights are off, you can't see what kind of designer sheets you're, <laughs> you're sleeping under. It's just you and the dark and the wonder, did I do the right thing by my kid? Yeah, I Fucked That Up is an Interval Presents original production from Silver Sound. Produced by Reed Adler and Jesse Ash. From Interval Presents, executive producers Alan Coy and Jake Kleinberg. Executive producers from Silver Sound are Corey Choi and Reed Adler. 
Story producer, Jesse Ash. Senior producers, Hunt Beatty and Rebecca Halperin. Sound, edit, design, and mix by Luke Allen. Original music by Killy Idol. Special thanks to Director of Operations, Sarah Yu. Senior Director of Digital Strategy and Business Development, Sheffy Ellensweig. And Director of Marketing, Samara Still. I'm your host, Billy Mann. Make sure to follow Yeah, I Fucked That Up. And listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. 